As we've gone through the book of Colossians and we have uh, hung over uh, this sermon series, this book, the supremacy of Christ in all things, this is the driving point uh, of each section, each sermon that we've gone through together, that Jesus is supreme. And everything in the book of Colossians seems to work from chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul talks about Jesus being the one who created all things, and he is the reason for all things. He holds all things together. And his point in doing that is saying, Jesus is supreme, and so for you to understand the gospel, for you to understand how to have your sins forgiven, for you to have joy for you to understand and refute false teaching as we've gone through Colossians, those things that minimize Christ, you've got to order your life in light of that reality. He's refuted false teaching in light of the cross, and then he's tried to unpack how we are to live in light of the supremacy of Christ in light of the cross. We, we talked about how we're to let sin die. The power of the gospel that begins inside of us, how we're to let that old man die and live new in Christ. And last week we talked about what it means for the church, how we're to live with peace in the church, with one another in light of the peace of the cross, living together, the word of God dwelling in the church with thanksgiving. And then we ended that section with verse 17 of chapter 3 that we just read, where Paul drives this point home again. And he says, whatever you do in word and deed, do in the name of Jesus. It's almost like he wants to remind us of that. Remember what we're to be about. As he's unpacked all of these different things throughout the book, remember this is about the name of Jesus. And the reality is we gather here today and the world is full of self-help books, good advice, counseling, how to, how to achieve your goals, how to live a better life, how to have a better marriage, how to be successful, their podcast. Our world, in our context, is full of all of those helpful advice. But... If you do not begin with the supremacy of Christ, all of that is, first of all, meaningless, and all of that will leave you in discontent. You start your life in light of the supremacy of Christ, how you do all things, and then that makes sense of every area of your life. And here today, Paul is going to drive home the areas of marriage, family, and work. If you do not begin with the supremacy of Christ, these areas of your life, these relationships, your task, your roles, your responsibilities will make no sense. And they will leave you in misery and discontent. And so as Paul begins to address the supremacy of Christ in family, notice verse 18, he begins to talk about how Jesus is supreme in marriage. And he begins verse 18 direct, uh, addressing wives, and he says, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And I know immediately when I read that word submit, there is this awkward cringe across the room. And it's because I don't think we understand what Paul's talking about when we talk about submit. It's actually a military term. 
Submission is not forced. It is to willfully rank yourself under the authority of another. And so here Paul says, wives, the way that you make Jesus supreme in your marriage is that you willfully embrace your husband as God's leader in the home. You do that freely. You choose to do that. You're not forced to do that. And notice he says, as is fitting in the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, this is right in light of the Lord's authority in your home. But here he says, you are obligated to do this. You're not forced to submit, but under the authority of Christ, you are obligated to obey him. And in obeying him, this is how you obey him in your marriage. You give yourself over to your husband's authority. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul impacts why wives would do this. Wives are to picture the church's disposition toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The church trusts Jesus, respects Jesus, and submits to his leadership. And so the way that wives make Jesus supreme in their home is they display this picture of the church's love, trust, and respect and submission to Jesus. Now, understand submission does not speak to a person's essence. It doesn't define who you are. It is an active, intentional decision. Actually, this word submit is used of Jesus. He had to submit to his parents' authority. He had to submit to the Father's authority. The idea of submission is actually rooted in God himself. You have the Trinity. There's three in one, three equal persons, but each of them submit to different roles. The Father sends the Son. He chooses to send the Son. The Son submits to what the Father has called Him to do and sent Him to do. The Spirit submits to the Father and Son in making much of Jesus. And so this idea of freely giving yourself over to the authority of another is rooted in God. It's used of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, the Lord of glory who has all power and all authority and all rule. He chooses to submit and become a man, a slave, cursed on the cross. And an important point to make is submission is to be cultivated by a husband who is submitting to Jesus and sacrificing for his wife. That is how submission is cultivated in the home. And so I would say to wives today, Never submit when it means disobeying God. You don't submit to someone who is calling you to disobey God. Never submit to someone who is abusive or is unfaithful. You don't submit to sin and wickedness in the home. And at times, you have to submit to your husband's responsibility and role, even when you're having a hard time submitting to him. As you, submit him, as you submit him to the Lord in prayer. He's not perfect. He has flaws. He's in process too. And there's times where you're, you're, not, you're not at that point yet, but you submit him to the Lord and you're praying for his heart as you in the home submit to this order. But Paul continues addressing the husbands next. How does the husband make Jesus supreme? 
He says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We see here the man is to be the sacrificial leader, protector, provider in the home. This is who the wife is trusting, following, respecting, submitting to. Why would she do this? Because he is loving his wife. Notice, love your wives. Love is a commitment. We say it all the time around here. Love is a commitment to another person's good no matter what it costs you. And love is defined by the cross. Jesus committed himself to his bride and gave his life for her sin. He's committed to her no matter what it cost him. It cost him his life, enduring the wrath of God for her. And this is to be, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, the love that the husband displays in the home. This is how he makes Jesus supreme, is he mimics the sacrificial love of Christ for his wife. Notice he adds here, do not be harsh. The word for harsh is bitter. And it's the word that describes a sour stomach. Do not be bitter. Do not be sour. Do not cause this sourness and bitterness in your home. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this is, to, uh, this is in light of the call for us to be gentle and meek. And here, instead of being harsh, the husband is to love, and this would be displayed in gentleness and meekness. Now, this Verse 19 is radical in the cultural context. In this cultural context, women were little more than property. They were pods for kids. And the man, the husband, held all of the wife's identity, her inheritance, who she was in the world, her rights. And for Paul to say, in Christ, first of all, your wife is a fellow heir. She has the same status that you have in Christ. And then he goes even beyond that and says, and you are to love her the way Christ loved the church. This is radical. She's not just property. She's not just for children. She is to be loved. And you're to give yourself over to her as a picture of the gospel. But we see in these first two verses That marriage is about the supremacy of Christ. As a husband mimics the sacrificial love of Christ, and as the wife mimics the submission, love, trust, and respect that the church is to have for Christ. It is a picture of the gospel. And so marriage ultimately is about the supremacy of Christ. It's a flesh and blood picture of the gospel in which Christ is supreme. And on a Sunday day, if you give your marriage any other purpose, you will be discontent and you will be miserable and it will, do, it will not do what you want it to do. If your marriage is ultimately about kids, if your marriage is ultimately about romance or about some status that you have in the world, it will be meaningless and miserable. And it will constantly fall short of what you want. Because that is not the purpose of marriage. And what happens is when you go through difficult seasons, it won't be worth it. Because it's not giving you what you want. But if marriage 
first and foremost is about the supremacy of Christ in the gospel, then you can endure difficult seasons. Sometimes you can go through misery to get to the other side of the goodness and glory of displaying the gospel. And it's really hard and it's difficult. But if it has any other purpose, you're not going to make it through. If it has any other purpose, it's going to be meaningless and you're going to be miserable. But if it's about the supremacy of Christ, you can always keep that in front of you. And like so many other things we do for Jesus, we can endure suffering and difficulty with joy, understanding the glory that comes from that. And this also means your marriage must be the priority in your home. If it is the picture of the gospel, it must be the priority in your home. You are not business partners with kids. You are married. You display this covenant between Christ and the church. And I think over the last year, that the most helpful advice that I've given folks is to make your marriage a priority daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly. Meaning there has to be a time out of every day where you stop and say, let's remember our marriage is the priority. Whatever that looks like, prayer, conversation, a date, whatever it looks like, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. And wives, I gave this task to your husband during our men's gathering. And they were supposed to go home and they didn't do it. You, you look over, look at them right now, tell them they need to go back through their notes. Because they were to plan this out daily, weekly, monthly, and then annually to even get away as a couple, away from the kids. And some of you did it, and it's glorious. You, you got away. But then others of you, your husband came home and said, we need to do this. And you said, what about the kids? We can't leave the kids. And it's gracious and kindly, pastorally, I love you so dearly, I can say this, that reveals a problem in your home. Your kids are not the center of your home. Your marriage is. And you have to be willing to do whatever it takes daily, weekly, monthly, and even annually to communicate that to yourself, to others, and even to your kids. You're not the priority. Because one day... They're not going to be there. What's going to happen? And so you have to make marriage the priority of your home. It is to display the gospel. And as we talked about husband and wife, we both have roles to do this, to make Jesus supreme. And we're to give ourselves over to the supremacy of Christ by focusing on our role. And so husband, wife, your role as husband and wife is your witness in your home, in your marriage. That is your first and foremost witness. You can share the gospel all you want with as many people as you want, but if you're not loving your wife, you're a hypocrite. You're not trusting, respecting, submitting to your husband. You're a hip that is your flesh and blood depiction of the gospel. And so give yourself over to that role. Marriage is not 50-50. Bartering. That leads to way more conflict. It is about you giving yourself over 100% to your role 
as a husband or wife to love and respect for the good of your spouse, not yourself, the glory of Christ and your spouse. And so conflict, decision-making, you engage in that with saying, how do I love in this moment? How do I respect? How do I submit? How do I trust? How do I give myself over to her? How do I follow him? Whatever the conflict decision is, that is your responsibility. That is your witness to make Jesus supreme. But next we see the supremacy of Christ and family. Notice verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. The word obey here is, it means to acknowledge the authority of parents and then heed what they say. It means hear what they say and then do what they say. Obey. You have to recognize their authority to do so. But notice he says, in everything. Now, how can he say in everything? Because it is assumed that the parent is obeying the Lord following Christ. And so if the child recognizes the parent as authority and is following them, they're going to be obeying the Lord and following Christ. That's why he can say in everything, because it is assumed that the parent is following the Lord. But notice he says here, for this pleases the Lord. It is the Lord's will. It is the Lord's good pleasure. It is right for children to submit to their parents, to obey them. This is God's design for their good. And so parents, you have to understand this. To neglect your child's obedience to the good things you're calling them to do is to neglect their good before the Lord. And we do this so often for their temporary happiness. That's not good for them. That's not what pleases the Lord. And so establishing authority that they listen to, that they heed, is for their good. And ultimately, we pray, leads to the Lord. But he continues to explain the context in which such authority comes. Notice he says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He looks to dads here. Dads are the overseers, leaders of the home. And while they don't do all of the parenting, they are responsible for the parenting. They lead the home in this way. And here Paul's calling dads to lead their children with grace. Notice he says, do not provoke. This means to irritate, stir up, prod. And he says, lest they become discouraged, they they become exasperated and frustrated. And we see here dads determine our kids' understanding of God by the way we use our authority. The authority we have as parents is rooted in God, and it is to display God's glory. So if we misuse that authority, we're saying something about God. And so our authority is to come with grace. We exasperate our kids when we are overbearing with our authority, and our kids become insecure We exasperate, we discourage our kids when we are distant and passive with our authority. And our kids are out of control. They don't know the boundaries. And they're stressed and they're worried. That's rooted in what dad is doing in the home. That's where it begins. How is authority being established in the home by dad? And ultimately, when we misuse authority, we say something about God. 
We say he's an overbearing tyrant, just wants things his way. Or he's just a foreign concept idea that has nothing to do with their life. And ultimately, our kids become insecure before God and rebellious to God because they've never seen authority with grace in the home. God is a gracious father. And dads, we set the tone in the home, even for moms that are parenting of this authority with grace. We see grace comes in the context of authority. We got to get that to really understand what we're trying to do with our kids. God establishes his authority in the world. He is ultimate authority, and he does this through his law and his word. He is the holy creator, and all things come from him. Therefore, he is the standard and authority for everything. But what we learn in Scripture is God's authority is grace. He tells us what we should and shouldn't do for our good. There is life when we recognize his authority, and we obey him, and we trust him. And ultimately, God's authority defines what grace is. Think about this. Grace exists because his authority has been established, but it's been rejected. That's why we need grace. So without the establishment of authority, we don't understand what grace is. If grace is any and everything, it's nothing. No, grace is needed because we rebelled against God. And this is the authoritative grace you are to establish in your home for your kids. As parents, we are to be authoritative grace. That means we establish authority in the home. There is right and wrong. And ultimately, we tell our kids there's right and wrong. There's things that are good and bad. Why? Because God created a world and he's the standard. And I'm here to communicate to you the standard. There is right and wrong. And they have to have a concept of that in your home. And your authority is to be grace in their life. Your kids are to learn that if I really listen to mom and dad, that there is wisdom there and there is goodness there, but you have to establish authority for them to understand that. There is life in what they're calling me to do. Think about the book of Proverbs. A mom and dad's wisdom is this glorious wreath that, that, that the victor of a race wears around their neck in glory. Your authority defines grace. Again, in your home, if everything is grace, nothing is grace. Nothing is grace if everything is grace. Grace comes in the context of establishing authority. And yes, there's right and wrong, and, I, and this is authority, and this is what you were supposed to do, and you didn't do that. And these are the consequences. But I'm not withdrawing from you. I'm not alienating for you. See how that teaches them grace? If there was never an authority, they don't understand the love that you're giving them when you're being gracious to them. I'm not taking this personal. I'm not going to be petty with you. I'm actually going to draw in in love. I'm going to draw in with mercy. But they only understand that when they understand there is right and wrong, there is good and bad, there's danger with your authority being established. And in this context, this is where they learn that Jesus is an authoritative king. He is supreme. 
This is why parenting is about the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is supreme. He is king. And all things are determined by him. And though you have rebelled against him, he is authoritative. But he is authoritative grace in flesh and blood who loves you. This is how they understand the gospel in authority and grace. And because it's about Jesus, parents, this this is what you got to get. This is about the supremacy of Christ so I can lean in. It's hard to get them to do what I want them to do. It's a fight daily. They're They're little wicked sinners. And that's hard. But if it's about Jesus, supremacy of Christ, you remind yourself of that. I can establish these rules and be consistent with them and train with urgency because I want you to understand these things are good for you. And if it's about the supremacy of Christ, you can be gracious with them. When they disobey, you're not emotional and petty. Oh my goodness, this is such a personal insult. No, this is about Jesus. This isn't about me. You can say and do whatever you want. With me, I want you to know Jesus, and so I'm going to love you, and I'm still going to lean in and be kind and merciful with you, because this isn't about my reputation. This isn't about our relationship. This is about you knowing Jesus. It's about the supremacy of Christ. But next, we see work in the supremacy of Christ. Notice verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not men. Now, in this context, he's giving these principles in the institution of slavery, which we would say was unjust. Humans were still seen as property for the most part. But in this culture, this is how goods and services and work was translated. And it relates in our context to the employee-employer relationship. And I would summarize it this way. If a slave can work unto the Lord in unjust context, we can work unto the Lord into in our context. And so these principles of work here apply to us. Notice, first of all, he says, whatever you do, whatever situation you're in, whatever work you are doing, whatever your relationship is with your boss, employer, Work heartily. Notice the word work heartily. It's work with your whole heart. It is to have a single focus. Notice what your focus in your work is. As for the Lord, not men. You are working before the Lord as a Christian. You are a witness to the supremacy of Christ, and it is Jesus you are working for, first and foremost, not men. And so you work with an eye to the Lord, not men, not being men pleasers. Notice verse 24. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. He's talking about the kingdom here. And you're not working for heaven. You're not working for the kingdom. As someone who is a Christian in the Lord, trusting in Christ, the king, the kingdom is yours and you will receive it. And so you are free. You are free in this life. To work as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, giving glory to God first and foremost, no matter the circumstance that you're in. He says, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying here is ultimately, Jesus will be the one to evaluate your work. Think about that. You're not working for your paycheck primarily, ultimately, eternally. You're not working for the success ultimately, that you get from your job, although those things are good and right 
And we should do those things and receive those things to the glory of God. But we always see beyond those things. And the status that our job gives us here, we are working, understanding that one day we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and He will evaluate the way that we worked. Your Monday through Friday is not irrelevant to your Christianity. And you will stand before Jesus and give an account of that. Did you work for Him? Did you have an eye to Him? And He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong He has done. There is no partiality again. And we're going to see in the next verse, He's connecting this to working to the Lord. Ultimately, this interaction between slave and master could be unjust and unfair. Even your job sometimes can seem unjust and unfair. But ultimately, God is the one who will evaluate everyone, boss, employee, employer. He will evaluate everyone. And so you keep that in mind. But ultimately, you're not identified by your job. You're identified as a Christian working for the supremacy of Christ. And we have to just go on record and say this today. Work is not bad. It's not bad. God worked six days and rested on the seventh. He modeled a work week for us. Work is good. The curse made it really hard. By the sweat of your brow and thorns, you got to work. But work is not the curse. Work will be eternal. In Revelation, we see heaven comes down as a city. The new Jerusalem. And how is that city going to function? We're going to work, and we're going to love it, because every second is going to be about Jesus, bringing Him glory. And we have to figure out how to do that now, as difficult as it may be for some of us. In a lot of ways, we're on an apprenticeship here, learning how to work to the glory of God forever. But you've got to understand your work is done for the supremacy of Christ. Remember, back in chapter 1, He holds all things together. Understand this, you were created in the image of God to give glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning you were created uh, with a mind, with a soul, with emotions, with a body. You were created in this world to work and to live and give glory to Christ, to not give 100% with all that God has given you to give. All that He has created you to be is sin. And it dishonors God for us to be lazy and not work with all that He has created in us and given us with our mind, our heart, our skill, our talent. We are to create. We are to build. We are to bring order in this world for the glory of Christ. We are to display in the way that we live. Look what Jesus created. Look look what Jesus did. The creativity. The strength. The grit. The courage. Every day, look to the world around us. Look at the glory of Christ as we work. We're to work to discover and teach others. We're to work really hard at at mining the depths of this world to, to then show them to the rest of the world. If you're a teacher, if you're someone who's leading others, show them to the rest of the world and say, look at this amazing world that God created. We're to work hard at doing that so 
The rest of the world knows this isn't neutral. Jesus created all of these things. Look at Jesus' glory all around. We're to work hard at discovering and teaching Jesus' glory. We're to work to make beauty and cook goodness, harness sound, so the world around us sees and hears and tastes the glory of God. We're to work hard at solving problems, formulating ideas, crunching numbers. Why? So the most can be accomplished for the glory of God. We're to work hard at that. We're to work to bring order and light and life to things that are decaying and out of line and need to be repaired. To say, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus' creation. We're to work hard to assert logic and truth over confusion and lies and sin. We're to work hard at these things for the glory of Christ. And we're to work to preserve the glory in others. Their body, their mind, their heart, racked with sin and death. There's decay. There's hurt. And we step in to preserve the glory of God and point to the glory and image of God in everyone, even those who are suffering physically, mentally, emotionally. We're to work hard at these things. But in this context, we're to work primarily as a citizen of heaven. You are at your job tomorrow for the glory of Christ. You're full of the Spirit and a Christian to witness Christ. It's not just our missionaries around the world. At the school, the post office, Walmart, stay-at-home moms, delivering pizzas, whatever it is. You are there in those moments as a citizen of heaven. And folks around you should know it at some point. You work hard. You do things with excellence. And folks say, why do you do that? Let me tell you, I have a king. And it's not our employer. I have a king that transcends this world and his name is Jesus. And I work for him. Let me tell you why I work for him. Because he died on a cross for my sins and he's raised from the dead. And I'm going to live with him forever. Let me tell you about Jesus. That is what work is about. Ultimately, as a witness. And then he concludes this section in referring to masters. This is someone with absolute authority, most often in the home. And he says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Now, I think we can make application to anyone who has authority over others when it comes particularly to work here. And he says, he uses this word just, which is right, equitable, fairly, but notice the principle, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so if you're here today and you have authority over others, maybe you are an employer. Maybe you are a leader. Maybe you're a coach. Maybe you're a professor. Maybe you're a teacher. And you hold the livelihood and careers of others in your hand, so to speak. Their success, their self-worth. You are to mimic how Jesus would use that authority. The one who had all authority and yet chose to graciously serve us. You're to mimic him in the way that you serve and you provide for others who work under you. And so we see here the supremacy of Christ in marriage, supremacy of Christ in family, supremacy of Christ in work. And I wonder 
is in your heart as we've gone through those things, you, you've seen the monumental task before you to make much of Jesus. And you understand how difficult and how hard that is. And you understand there's not just a, some tidbits of advice over here that's going to make it easier or better. Because if I, if I am not living for the supremacy of Christ, it's not just that I'm at odds with my spouse, my kids, folks I work with or work for. I'm at odds with God, first and foremost. And I've got to first and foremost get that right in my mind. If I'm not approaching marriage, family, and work to make Jesus supreme, I am at odds with God. And some of us realize this. I think all of us realize it to some extent. If Jesus is not supreme in our hearts, that's going to be impossible for us. You don't make Jesus supreme just through self-discipline and grit and just doing the right thing. That doesn't last long. That, that won't help. First of all, Jesus has to be supreme in your life through the gospel. We start there. Making Jesus supreme in everything always goes back to the gospel. No matter what, no matter what task, no matter what relationship, no matter what role, no matter what responsibility, we go back to the gospel. Why? Because there Jesus was made supreme over our sin. And, and we come before the cross and we say, I have not lived for your glory and your supremacy and I deserve hell and I deserve judgment and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't be good enough and if I don't trust in you, I'm going to spend eternity in hell paying for my own sin. And we come to the cross and there Jesus is supreme and he is lifted up and we are forgiven of our sins when we believe in him and trust in him and hope in him alone and boast in his cross. And so we make Jesus supreme first and foremost in our hearts. So if you're here today and you're having trouble with making Jesus supreme in your home or at your job or whatever career or task as a student... Go back to the cross and remind yourself why He's supreme. Dwell on, dwell on the gospel. I need Him to be supreme or I have no hope. And then in light of the gospel, do this simple thing every day this week. Whatever is before you, marriage, family, work, maybe you want to add other things to that. Before your feet hit the floor, before you reach over to grab the devil device and put it in front of your face, just stop and say, God, help me make Jesus supreme. Fill in the blank. Help me make Jesus supreme in my marriage. Help me make Jesus supreme in my parenting. Help me make Jesus supreme in my work. Help me make Jesus supreme in my study. Whatever it is. Let's just start there. Let's get our minds and our hearts right. Let's make Jesus supreme in all things.